invite you, beloved, to turn to Luke 20, the 20th chapter of Luke's Gospel, please. Sometimes as a young person, you would you'd be over other people's homes and you'd be in their kitchen, you'd open up these cupboards and they're full of all these various types of cereals and so on. And as a child, I used to just marvel at this because in our household, the rule for cereal was very simple, whatever was on sale. And so that's really what, that's what you were fed growing up. And I'm sure there are many other homes that still run by the same principle. come to God's Word tonight. We've been fed already as we've been singing, have we not? Encouraged in our hearts. I want us to pick up where we left off. So we've gotten as far as verse 18, where again you have this statement that really is a statement of judgment for Israel that the stone, Christ is a stone, is going to break them, destroy them, whether they fall upon it or on whomsoever it shall fall. There's no escaping His judgment. And so with that, we come then to verse 19, that is, hear the Word of God. And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Amen. And again, may the Lord write his truth upon us and give us a mind to receive it by faith. This is, as we've said, the very Word of God. Let's pray, beloved. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we look to His truth. Lord, bless Thy Word. Help us to receive it as we ought. With all of our shortcomings and sins, part of our problem is we struggle to hear and receive the Word. But grant that we may be enabled tonight 
to rightly understand, to grasp, to apply, to live out thy word. To that end then, wash us from all our sins and grant us the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this place. As we have just been singing of the reign and the conquering of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that he may, he may conquer over our sins as well as his and our enemies. So come, take us from merely a sermon and grant a message fit for the occasion and for every life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to remind you, beloved, we are presently, as you read Luke 20, in the final few days of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has the cross in view. That has been the case for a long time now. As he made his way toward Jerusalem, it was with that intent. He has set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He has now arrived after the triumphal entry. He cleanses the temple and immediately he is confronted in a most vicious manner. You see the end of chapter 19 again, verse 47. He taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. So they have this intent to try and destroy him. This is heightened. It's been there for a long time, but it's very heightened at this moment. And it's, it's hard for us really to feel something of the energy of what is going on in these moments. The, the palpable sense of anger and animosity and the utter rejection that can be sensed from the religious leaders. Now, there may have been, in fact, we know there were some exceptions among them, but the vast majority have this real sense of anger and a unified desire, even to the point that you have odd people coming together in order to join hands uh, when you were coming to this section that we're looking at Tonight, you have the Herodians even involved, as far as Mark records it. And so this, this is strange kind of joining of hands, as they all intend to tr remove the Lord Jesus Christ, because in some way, he threatens the status quo. They are comfortable. Leaders like to keep things as they are. They don't want change. And so even when change has to take place, they tend to deny it. And the part of the rot of an organization is whenever it refuses to take an honest look at itself and is always trying to defend itself. Once an organization or an institution gets to the place where it refuses to self-critique, then the death and rot is already there. As you see this, you see it politically, you see it, again, as we've said, in institutions and organizations and business and even in churches. When you get to that point where you can't honestly look at yourself, then already the death has crept in. Well, that's where they've gotten to. And the way that they are moving uh, in their behavior toward Christ only compounds the reality of their position. So they come, and we've seen in the opening verses with one question, uh, by what authority doest thou these things? Verse 2, or who is he that gave thee this authority? Again, our Lord Jesus addresses this. It then leads on into a launching pad of what is described in verse 9 as a parable, but it's not like usual parables. Other parables had a certain sense of hiding aspects of the truth, and this again aided the confirmation of who Jesus is as the Messiah, given that he was to teach by parables. But on this occasion, what he teaches is plain, so plain that it is even the most spiritually blind can see it. Verse 19, where we commenced our reading tonight, the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. 
Now, part of what they're trying to do is undermine Christ, get him to say something that either undermines him before the public or that they can use to bring to the Pilate or whoever in order to have him get in trouble, as it were, as someone who's causing unrest within the nation. Well, he flips the tables. He, they're, as they sense the people are understanding, everyone knows that he has turned and pointed the finger right at them. In this parable, they are described as those who kill all God's servants and ultimately going to kill the Son. So it has this prophetic message also about what is about to take place in a matter of days. Well, as we come to verses 19 through 26, you have what is perhaps one of the more well-known interactions in this section that relates to this question that comes, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? And again, we're going to see this is another unfruitful question, one that is asked with evil and sinful intent, but it becomes a fruitful discussion. Our Lord Jesus makes it so. And so I've titled my message, A Vain Question Made Fruitful by Christ. A Vain Question Made Fruitful by Christ. Note with me a few things. First of all, Christ's resilience. In the context that we have here, we see again the resilience of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I read this, at times I am just amazed at the strength of character he shows. I don't know if you have ever had someone attack you or undermine you repeatedly. Uh, if you have, you'll know it's not the worst experience in the world. I'm not going to exaggerate it, but it's certainly a wearying one. And so you take it whether it can happen in the home. Sometimes you'll have uh, spouses and they will undermine one another and do it in front of the children. And it's just, if ever there was self-destruction. I mean, that's it right there. Don't undermine one another's authority in the home. But you have it also in a place of work. And maybe you've had the occasion where your boss has called you in and he's given a criticism uh, about your work or your something about you. And, and you know the feeling. You know the feeling of walking away and that sinking feeling that plays on your mind, it keeps you up at night, it bothers you. Well, imagine that. Imagine that feeling which you may have experienced just once, imagine it happening repeatedly over and over again and done so in a public way in order to try and undermine everything you stand for and all that is true about you. That's what you have here. That experience, that feeling. So what may keep us up at night because one person who has our best interests at heart says something critical about us here you have someone who far from has any best interest toward the Lord Jesus Christ is attacking him, multiplying it repeatedly, and doing so publicly. And that's what our Lord Jesus endures. And you never once find him getting uptight. You never once see him flying off the handle. You never once see him feel it, showing any form of weakness. It's a powerful expression of the strength and integrity of his humanity. Now, there are two pitfalls in such experiences where you're continually attacked like you have here in this portion. Either your accusers get the better of you and they win the day because their desire is to get you off track, off, off the rails, as it were, and they get the better of you. Or the other one is that you become so hardened in order to survive that you lose the ability to hear criticism. Now, both of those are dangers, real dangers. Someone who's constantly assaulted is that they either break down, finally, that was the goal, or they become hardened, as I've said, in order to survive, 
And to that, then, they lose the ability to hear criticism. Well, our Lord Jesus is enduring what we see in those in the past. You have Joseph and what he experienced under his brothers, repeated accusations and envying and attacks. You have it with David and his brothers. I mentioned that in passing even this morning and what he faced with Eliab and his other brothers, the same idea. And now you have the Lord Jesus facing the older brothers of Israel coming at him with constant criticism and an effort to undermine him and his ministry. But it has gone further than criticism. The plot is to remove him by whatever means they can without losing out themselves. We have to get rid of them. They don't have any conscience about, conscience about taking his life. That's not the issue. They would take his life. But they won't take his life if it will negatively impact their own power and status. It has to be done in a way where they maintain their position. And so the trouble isn't so much how can we justly deal with this man? The problem is, how, and by what means can we do this? Any means at all. Just get rid of him without losing what we have already attained to in our community. So the Lord Jesus has them on the back foot. And you see in verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people. You have that underlined again. Part of the issue is the attention people are giving. At the end of chapter 19, verse 48, they could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And again, this is emphasized in verse 19. They're fearing the people, similar to how there's this mounting attention towards him, just as through the ministry of John the Baptist. And they perceived that they had spoken this parable against him, and so they watch him. And then they send forth these spies, as I've said the Herodians, Mark mentions that Herodians are involved here, and they feign themselves that they should be just men. So there are others involved too, and you'll, if you go to Mark's gospel, you'll see that, that they might take hold of his words, and so they might deliver him up to the power and authority of the governor. So I just, when you, when you see this, if you try to put yourself there, I couldn't help but sense just this, the resilience of Christ, the resilience of this. It would be easy just to step back. It would be easy to give up. It would be easy to just go into the shadows and walk away from the mission. But he doesn't. And if he had, every one of us would be on our way to hell. The resilience of Jesus Christ is an important aspect that causes praise to issue from our hearts because if he hadn't been so resilient, there would be no salvation. No progression to the cross, no imputation of our sin, no conferring of his righteousness, no hope for humanity. So I was encouraged by that, and I trust you are too, as you see that. And, and think of it in terms of yourself too, because there are times and seasons, even as we mentioned this morning, where really that's what you need to have. It's a sense of resilience. Resilience. Knowing the right path knowing the next step that God has for you to take and continuing to take that step no matter what. And you may have occasions where people will come and try to oppose you where the issue itself is hard enough. I mean, the cross is difficult enough. But this compounded by everyone coming against him. And ultimately then the, the absence of his disciples and everything, it just illustrates the resolve our Lord Jesus had. Well, you may go through something similar. And when you do, think back on, your Lord, on the Lord Jesus. Consider him. 
and endeavor by God's grace to model and walk even so as he walked. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Christ's recognition, his recognition. He knows exactly what's going on here. And just before we get to that, in verse 20, we're told of these, these spies which should feign, feign themselves. Interesting word there. Hypocrino, which if you think about it for a minute, hypocrino, uh, you start thinking, well, what does that sound like? That sounds like hypocrite, and that's exactly what you have here. These are men here playing a part. It's someone as if they are on stage. They're coming here to, there's nothing sincere about it. They're just actors. They're feigning themselves just men. But Christ sees right through it. Verse 23, he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, why tempt ye me? He can recognize it. <laughs> he, he can see right through it. So what do they present? First of all, there's insincere views of his position. Verse 21, they asked him saying, Master, Master. Insincere views of his position. They don't consider him Master, not over their lives at least. And so there's an insincerity even here in the very title that they give. This is what men do. They will give titles sometimes and they mean nothing by those titles at all. Doesn't register with them even what they are saying. There's also insincere views of his preaching. If you look at verse 21, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither accepts thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. So they are again elevating. We know. We know this. Now, did they believe this? No, they didn't believe it. But they're playing a part. Now, as true as it was, of course, we want to understand that this is insincere. Insincere. They, they, they hear what he's saying. They may not even have heard everything he said, but they're, they're feigning. They're pretending. They're playing a part. They're acting like they're found among that crowd, paying attention, listening to every, every word, receiving it, believing it, embracing it. And they're acting like they're part of those that are moved within the swelling crowd that are wanting to hear from Christ at this stage. The word that you have there in verse 21, they teach us rightly, is the word orthos. And we use our word orthodox in relation to that. Now, when I was thinking over this, this is, this is kind of an aside, but just, just, it just was an interesting thought I just share with you. I remember years ago, John Greer mentioning something about regarding the naming of churches. And he talked about how, you know, a church should name itself in a kind of sense of this is what we are, right? This is, this is who we are, just like giving information to people about what they believe and so on. But sometimes churches name themselves in such a way that there's, there's an implied sense that everyone else but them are wrong. I remember he talked about the churches of God or the churches of Christ. It was one of the two, I can't remember. Um, and, and he was saying, you know, in one sense, there, there's an, this subtle implication that they alone are the church of, of Christ or they alone are the church of God and everyone else is in the wrong. And when I was thinking about that and I was reading this, our cert, certain brothers we have have taken a similar name because the word orthos means right, and there's, there are churches scattered across our country called the Right Presbyterian Church, 
also known as the OPC. And I thought to myself, well, maybe is that is it the same idea there? Are they are they sort of is there an implied sense that we're right and everyone else is right? I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously a partial jest there. This is our pre, the preacher's mind go to all sorts of strange ways. But you have it. You see the, the sense here where they, they're saying you are orthodox. You are right in what you're teaching. They're affirming that the details that are coming from his mouth is everything in accordance with God's word. Whether they believe that or not doesn't really play into it. They're playing a part. So there's insincere views of his position, insincere views of his preaching. There's also insincere views of his practice because he acceptest thou the person of any. Neither acceptest thou the person of any. In other words, you're not influenced by anyone. You don't, you're not moved by, by who they are or what they believe or what their power may be. There's an impartiality in your treatment of everyone. Again, of course, this is true, but they don't mean it in any meaningful way. All of this, of course, could have been influential upon him because you think of it. Christ's, the entire time, one of the accusations against Christ was that he had no attention. He had no weight. He had no right to all the uh, influence that he was having. He is not this the carpenter's son. Or there's questions regarding his origin if you read John's gospel as well. And so sometimes what you find when someone is in a position of power and authority and they don't have the normal credibility that others have in those positions, it, it becomes a chip on their own shoulder. It actually becomes a weakness in their own position because they do feel it. They feel like they haven't gone through the normal schools and they haven't gone through the normal channels. And they wear that and it can shape them in a certain way. Well, these men, they play on that and they, they, they prod into what really forms a, a form of flattery to try and draw the Lord Jesus in. But again, he, he sees right through it. He recognizes it for what it is. He perceived their craftiness. Now, just a word on what they're doing here. What they're doing here is sinful. It is sinful. We live in a society where people want us to say nice things. And they will demand it. Or they will block you. Or or unfollow you or whatever. They demand you say nice things. But we have to be very careful very careful as believers that we do not overstate anything. That we use language that, that, that comes, what the Bible talks about, flattery. Flattery is intentional deception, usually with the purpose of gaining some personal benefit. And that's what they're doing here. And it is wicked. So why is it that people sometimes like things on social media and and heart things, and and write their comments, whatever. Sometimes it is flattery designed to influence for their own benefit. It is. And we have to be very careful, really careful, about how we go about our interactions with people, especially face-to-face. The Word of God says in Proverbs 26, 28, that a flattering mouth worketh ruin. We can speak to people in certain ways where we're working for their ruin and their destruction. We're destroying them. So when you do have that teacher, and perhaps you've gone through school and every teacher you've ever had thinks you're just wonderful, and then you meet that one, 
your nemesis, <laughs> isn't so impressed, perhaps we should be more thankful. Maybe that's the very thing we need. They're being really honest with us. And it's the thing that we need to, to hear, and God will use it if we are humble enough to receive it. A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. Proverbs 29, verse 5. And the Lord does not look lightly upon this at all. Psalm 12, verse 3, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips. He will take out judgment upon those who flatter. We were discussing this a little bit in Sunday, Sunday school in my class. And really with regard to the aspect of, of blasphemy. But again, you see how, how words have, have an influence. And the Lord, as, as words can be used to destroy people and destroy their soul, so God deals with it like it is murder of the soul. And so when we use flattering lips and we do it to murder the character of someone, to destroy them in particular ways, God will mete out judgment upon us. So again, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, you should remove all words of, of praise. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Please, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't uh, have your children in your home and, and never praise them. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't have them live constantly aspiring to hear from you praise when they accomplish something and never hearing it. Because you, you, you'll destroy them. You're constantly critical. You'll destroy them. Don't, don't take what the Scripture says about flattery to undergird and support your wicked criticism of your children. Never do that. They need praise. They need everything has to be measured. You don't look at it because they got 99%. You immediately say, well, what did you get wrong? <laughs> That's what we do, isn't it? And what do we do? We, 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 we turn them into little Pharisees where the only thing they're looking for are the faults and they can't see anything about what is good. This is dangerous, dangerous and even how we model this. So don't, don't take what the Scripture says about flattery and then use it to excuse the fact that you never say anything pleasant. Tell your wife the meals are delicious. It may not be as good as what she made last night, but you can still praise her for it. <laughs> we, we men especially, we, we have to be really, really careful with this. And not just. Women can be very sharp with their speech too. And we all can take this on board. But our Lord Jesus, I, I just want you to see this, he, he, he is not deceived by it. He recognizes it for what it is when there's flattery. And he will judge it. He sees all of our speech. Every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And whether that's flattery or criticisms, both of which are unnecessary and sinful in various contexts, he's going to judge it. He's going to deal with it. And what it reveals about our Lord Jesus Christ, when you see in verse 23, he perceived their craftiness, reminds us that this is the one who is going to judge the quick and the dead. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. These men are not escaping his discernment, his judgment. He can see right through them. And one day, every single one of us will stand before this same God-man. He will judge us. He will judge us. Now, for those of us in Christ, the mercy is that what he will see in us is the imputation of his righteousness. What he will see in us is union with himself. 
what he will see in us is the fact that we are part of his bride for whom he died and shed his blood. But if you're here holding on to some righteousness of your own, desiring that you might satisfy some measurement that you have of what God demands and you think you can hit that mark, you're deceived and you're going to stand before Christ. He will perceive and see right through all of the sham of your life. And the worst sin that you'll have to be confronted with is not all the ways in which you fell short regarding whether you were truly, let's say, uh, as pure with regard to the seventh commandment or even pure with regard to your speech and so on. It's not that. What's going to really impress you is the fact that the worst thing is your unbelief. Your rejection of Christ will be undeniable because you have sought to build a stairway to heaven, as it were, by your own works, ignoring Him and what He has done. The Son of God came into this world and He came not to destroy men's lives but to save them. But He saves them by them trusting in Him, believing Him, resting in Him, and receiving from Him what they need. If you ignore that, you have no hope. This brings us then thirdly and finally to Christ's response, which is the heart of the, the message, his response. Because they come to him, verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or no? I can't just, oh, can you not see them in the corners trying to figure out what to ask him, you know? <laughs> of course, they're, 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 they're not, the first thing is, how can we get him here, right? They're trying to take the Lord Jesus on a journey, right? To condemn him in some way. And so they're trying to map out, how do we get him there? And this is another one of the ways that they come up with. Now, the question is not, does the Bible say anything about taxes? It's not saying that, and it's not, they're not asking that. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar? Isn't saying, does the Bible deal with taxes? They, they, they know that. The question is, is it lawful, that is, does the Bible teach, does the Old Testament teach, that it is lawful for us to give taxes, we the people of God, to a foreign power? Now, the fact that Jews hated paying taxes to the Romans was no great secret. They hated it. The people hate paying taxes today. <laughs> and there was no different. But there's some taxes that hurt more than others. Some that you wince at more than others. Some that you might sense are more unbiblical or wicked than others. So this is what they come with. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar? Now what is interesting, what, what Luke does not highlight here, that Mark and Matthew do, again because the audience is distinct. Mark and Matthew use a very specific word regarding the tribute. And the word that is used specifically means poll tax. So Luke doesn't bring that out here, but that's, that's what they're inquiring about. Is it lawful for us to give to the foreign power a poll tax, a tax that is basically placed upon every head, a tax that you can't escape, 
And it goes in a certain coin straight to not local needs, not the administration of anything within the local arena, but goes straight back to Rome. Has absolutely no reflection in the representation of the people right there. So what they bring before the Lord Jesus here is a specific question about a specific tax that was the most hated tax by the Jews. If you like, it's the one that they had the greatest problem with. So they're not just talking about taxation generally. Is it lawful for us, the people of God, to give poll tax to a foreign power, to be taxed, have this head tax upon us all that doesn't even take into account our position, our wealth, is a certain amount of money that must go. It's expected of every man. Is that lawful? Now again, if you think in your own mind, some of you may not have given consideration to this, but I'm sure some of you have, there are certain taxes that you wince at more than others, as I've said, ones that you struggle with. And one of the things that the people have done in the past, and even some among God's people, is that they, they try to justify not paying certain taxes by the illegal nature of the tax. And so they tell themselves, well, this is an illegal tax, I'm not paying it. This tax can't be justified by God's word, I'm not paying it. Now, what do you think about that? Some of you old enough remember various waves of this where it comes in and trying to influence and get people, not whole movements, to try and get people to not pay taxes, certain taxes. These men come with the most hated tax. What about this, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Show me a penny, a denarius. This was a particular coin used in the Roman Empire, a coin that was used to pay this particular tax, and a coin that had an inscription. You see how the Lord Jesus points it out, where he asks them, Whose image and superscription hath it? And he answered and said, Caesar's. Well, because of archaeology and so on, we know that it didn't just have a representation of Caesar. We actually know what the wording was on the coin. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, the very coin used to pay the tax was an outrageous blasphemy in terms of the status it conferred or supposedly reflected regarding Caesar. Here's the one who is son of the divine. And the very son of God now is looking at that coin and pointing out to them what they are to do with regard to this matter of taxation. This is Caesar's. So in Christ's response, note a couple of things. First, the response recognizes distinct realms of authority. It recognizes distinct realms of authority. They answer Caesar's, verse 25, He said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. If I can simplify this, the Lord Jesus basically says, in a nutshell, that we are to, that the men who use Caesar's coin must pay Caesar's taxes. The men who are under Caesar's dominion must submit 
to what Caesar demands with regard to at least this subject of taxation. And so Christ then affirms the believer's submission to magisterial authority. It's a call to submission to government. Now, again, you come back and you ask this, yourself the question, well, are there, is there such a thing as a wicked tax? And I would say yes. There are certain taxes that we could say this is wicked, either because of the sheer amount of it or because it lays claim to ownership of things that really the government doesn't have any ownership of or whatever. There are various ways we can look at things and say this isn't really a just tax. But this is the most wicked tax that the Jews had in their day. And Christ doesn't forbid it. He does not forbid it. He said, this coin has on it the image of Caesar. And you pay Caesar what he is due with his coin. All men, Christian and otherwise, under God, have a responsibility to pay whatever is demanded of them in any realm. The only possible response to avoid a tax, at least on an individual level, is to relocate. Even then, you might not get away from certain taxes, depending on where your citizenship is. You don't have any choice. Now, part of this ties into some of the debate that we've been hearing over the last few years, and it's, it's cooling off a little, but it's still there to some degree. Now, some men would do well to go and read John Calvin on this whole subject. The Institutes has a huge section. I don't recall exactly now. I think it's, it's either book three or book four, and around the chapter 20-something. I'm... I'm speaking from memory way back. But to read what the reformer said regarding the experience of tyranny and the fact that we are called upon under God at times because of our sin to submit to wicked rulers. We don't get a pass simply because they are wicked. Our Lord Jesus then does not advocate for anarchy. We might say that anarchy is worse than tyranny. Tyranny makes one man an oppressor, or a wicked man, and many men oppressed. Anarchy makes many men oppressors, and many men oppressed. It multiplies the sin. Now, is there a response when you're under tyranny? Are there, are there right responses to being under a government or a regime that is so crushing to the people are the things that you can do? Yes. And the people have done it for millennia. They have fled. Or they have sought to, through democratic process, elect different leaders. And at times, they have had representatives who will interpose between the people and the, the ruler and because they have been rightly elected, they will, they, will, they will use their just authority to try and interpose and prevent. You see this. I, I could give examples in history of, of cities uh, not letting higher powers in, refusing to let the king in by the authority of the local, uh, the, the local authorities of that city. They wall, they go into siege mode, and they won't let the king and his army near. 
But it doesn't come through merely the will of the people and the whim of the people. It comes by the local representative, the local magistrates who decide, no, this has gone too far. We're not doing it. We know that rulers are called to submit to Christ. Christ is not saying that Caesar gets a pass here. Don't misunderstand me. Caesar does not get a pass. Psalm 2 makes it clear that the kings of this earth are to kiss the sun, lest to be angry. But we do not allow ourselves into a path of sin simply because of the sin of our leaders. We must live at times under their oppression, under their wicked rule. And God appoints it, and many times he uses it. You think of the early church, you think of the Christians and what they endured, you think of what they went through. They were not burned and they did not suffer and give their lives in the first century because they refused to give to Caesar taxes. That's not why they suffered. They suffered because they refused to call him Lord. In essence, the first century church says you can have our money. You can't have our worship. You cannot have our worship. We are to obey God rather than men when what they are demanding of us is in direct opposition to the command of our God. But here you have your God saying, if Caesar requests it, you give it. Imagine for a moment that Joseph had been like some people. And by Joseph, I mean Mary's husband. Imagine when they were called to register for taxation, he said, no way, (laughs) not doing it. His civil disobedience would have prevented the fulfillment of prophecy. I'm speaking, of course, hypothetically but prevented the fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah should be born in Bethlehem. God used a godly man and his obedience to government even to put the Messiah in the place where he was to be born. So there are distinct authorities, distinct powers, And yet, as I say, Caesar does not get a pass in this. Because secondly, the response implies God's ownership of man. The response not only recognizes distinct realms of authority, it implies God's ownership of man. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. What's so marvelous about this? They could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. It's not just his avoidance, as it were, of the predicament they tried to put him into. It's the profound implications of what he's just said. The image of that coin has Caesar on it. It belongs to Caesar. The image of man 
as the very mark of God. Man belongs to God. Even on that coin, as it showed Caesar, it showed the depiction of a man who was made in the image of God. The very image of Caesar itself showed that he was subordinate to another authority. He was a man, subordinate to the God who made him. And so it is for us all. We are made in the image of God. There's not one of us who can escape it. You can't recreate yourself. You can't change the reality. You're made in the image of God. And just as that coin had the inscription that pointed to Caesar and said it belonged to him, so the stamp of God's image upon your life says you belong to God. You belong to God. You're made by him. So as they mull this over, as they give consideration to what the Lord Jesus has said, he has recognized and honored the truth that is seen all throughout the Bible, that we are to recognize legitimate human authority. But upon man is the mark that shows he is under the authority of God, no matter who that man is, no matter what his status in life, no matter what his position, no matter his throne. Caesar is subject to God. That's why, that's why Christians don't obey Caesar when Caesar asks them to do something that goes up in opposition, direct opposition to God. As we've said, the Christians suffered because there were things Caesar asked of them they could not do. And you find it with Peter and John. We can't do this. We can't do what you're asking us because our God says, preach the gospel to every creature. You're telling us to preach no more in this name. You tell us. Should we obey God rather than man? Of course. There must be obedience to God if what man is saying is in opposition. But here's the fact. Every one of us, if we're in this position where the very image of God is upon us, and so while we give our coins to the federal government, <laughs> whatever, while we pass on our money to wherever it ends up going, local or federal or whatever, as all that money goes there, and that, God says, that's what you're to do. But you're made in my image. You belong to me. And you make sure you render to me the things that belong to me. So we come to this point and we start asking ourselves, what is this saying to me? Well, yes. Does it tell me about my taxes? Yes, it does. Does it tell me about my submission to local authorities and national authorities and the government of the nation in which I live? Yes, it does. Can we look at it and begin to get into the question of the legitimacy of the the Revolutionary War, you can get into all of that for sure. You can start discussing those matters. But what is most pertinent right here tonight is the fact that you're to render to God the things that are God's. Every one of us, you children, you belong to God. You can't escape it, children. You belong to God. Every young person here, you belong to God. He claims ownership of your life. Now you can live as if you own yourself, or you can live as if someone else perhaps has control of your life, but you can't escape this. Your life, we, in Him we live and move and have our being. The very existence, the very breath you're taking in now is given by God. The life that upholds you is upheld by God. 
and you have a mark upon you, you belong to God. Have you then rendered to God that which belongs to God? Have you? Have you submitted to God that which you need to submit to God, namely your life? Your life belongs to God. Your life is in the hands of God. And God demands it. He says, my son, give me your heart. He calls you to surrender. Building on the theme that we looked at this morning, it comes back to us. Rendering to God that which belongs to God means total, complete consecration. No half measures, no excuses, no escaping. God's saying, give me what belongs to me. Your life belongs to me. You don't, you're not your own. I own you by creation. And if you claim the name of Christ, you're doubly owned through redemption, purchased again by the blood of Jesus. And yet people want to have all the merits and all the benefits of the gifts that come from the Creator's hand to men. And the added blessing sometimes of what comes to us through Christ. But we take that from God. We rip it out of his hand, as it were, and try to hold on to our own little lives and say, this is mine, Lord. How on earth can we convince ourselves that there can be any peace by making an enemy of God. When you don't render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, what happens? You're going to find out. His authority will come swiftly and sometimes mercilessly. It's going to come upon you and you will regret that power as it is applied to your existence. Caesar will make you feel his power so you learn your lesson. So why on earth do you think God will treat you much differently? Oh yes, he will do it in a just way. He will do it in a way that we cannot impinge any guilt on him. But you'll still feel his power. I wonder at times at the afflictions that we see in our nation prospering as we do here. The entire world wants to live here. And yet, medically speaking, as I've said before, looking at the numbers, we're the most miserable nation on earth. We find no contentment, no peace. Hearts filled with anxiety every day. America. Materially favored so that the average American lives to a higher standard of life than presidents less than a century ago. And yet we're miserable. What is this? But God refusing to give peace to a people at odds with him. He won't let it happen. Render to God what belongs to God. Give him your heart. 
Give him your life. Repent and believe the gospel. When Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, yes, it's to kings. But it exemplifies what we all are to do. Bow the knee. Surrender to the reign of the Lord Jesus. Give our lives entirely, not holding anything back and saying, Lord, what I am is yours. I hold nothing back. Lord, I've given you me. Whatever you can do with it. I give you my family. I give you my gifts. I give you my bank accounts. I give you everything I have and am or have any authority over. I I give it to you. Multiply the few loaves. Use them as you can. Make an impact for your glory. That's rendering to God the things that are God's. Are you there? May the Lord give you grace. Let's bow together in prayer. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who's troubled because you you know that you're holding back and yet again you've heard a message in God's providence that is calling you to, to surrender, to give up your life, to consecrate, consecrate all that you are and have and to give it into his hands. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you can't get there, if you refuse to get there, you'll never get out of the starting blocks in the Christian life. You'll always be stumbling. Render to God that which is God's. If I can help you, If you have any questions or struggles, be sure to talk to me. At the very least, we'll pray with you. Our gracious God, we ask that you will bless your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for him who was resilient, who made his way to the cross with such resolve that we could never question his love. We pray that we will take his words and not merely render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and reliably pay our taxes and our dues year after year. But may we on a daily basis render to God that which is God's. Lord, help us. 
May we say, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Bring us there, Lord, where we see how the Son of God rendered to God that which was God's, as it were, obeyed in full all that the Father required him to do. Bless our time. Hide thy word in our hearts. Go with us this week, empowering us to live in the victory of Christ's work and effectively in this fallen world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.